Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. We are making our way through. In a, in a couple of weeks, I would imagine that we're going to take a break from Mark for a little bit. Um, we've been in this for a while. We'll take a break, and then in the fall, even, we're going to go back into Genesis and uh, look at the life of Abraham. Uh, we went through the first 11 chapters uh, earlier this year, and so if you, if you missed that, uh, that series, you can find it online and uh, get brushed up. And so in a, co- in a number of weeks, I would assume the plan is to go through the letters to the churches in Revelation in Revelation 2 and 3, and we're going to find out what it means to be a Christ-centered, a Bible-centered church, and so I'm looking forward to that. So Mark chapter 7, if you brought your Bibles with you, follow along with me. Uh, If you didn't bring your Bible with you, that's fine. It'll be on the screen. Uh, You might have a translation that's different than mine, and that's perfectly okay. Um, And here's what uh, uh, Mark writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him. They observed that some of his disciples were eating bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs that they have received and keep, like the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, dining couches. And so the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders instead of eating with bread with ceremonially unclean hands? He, being Jesus, answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching his doctrines human commands. Abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. He also said to them, you have a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your own tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father and mother must be put to death. But you say, if anyone tells us father or mother that whatever benefit you might have received from me is Corban, that is an offering to God, you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, you, and you do many other similar things. Summoning the crowd again, he told them, listen to me, all of you, and understand Nothing that goes into a person from the outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. When he went into the house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said, Are you also as lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but is in his stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, whatever comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, 
self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things come from within and defile a person. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would that you would give us wisdom today, Lord. We ask, we beg for help. Lord, we plead with you that your spirit would convict us of sin and that it would point us to Jesus Christ and that we would find our hope, that we would find our joy, that we would find our glory in him alone and nothing that we put uh, in front of us. Lord, let those things not take our focus off of Jesus today. And it's in his name that I ask this. Amen. Well, if you were to go to my house right now in my backyard, one of the first things that you would notice is these uh, large evergreen shrubs. They're planted on two of the, the corners of our house, and then we have two more that are sort of on the, the corners of our deck in, uh, in the backyard. They are all obviously overgrown. Uh, the ones that are next to the deck are not that high yet. They're, they're, they're probably uh, come up to my chest or so, but they certainly look uh, unkempt. But if you were to look to the left of those shrubs, uh, to the corner of the house, you would quickly notice this massive green horticultural ball that is right on the corner of our house. It, it is probably my guess, I haven't measured seven to eight feet tall. I mean, it, it, it is way bigger than I am. In fact, when, I'm going to call you out, youth, when you all teepeed my house last year, you all left a, a roll of toilet paper in there that you couldn't reach because it was too high. And it's been slowly disintegrating. All the youth are getting ready for this thing, aren't they? I can't, I can't shame them right now. But it's been slowly disintegrating with every bit of uh, uh, precipitation that we've had. You know, shrubs like this are not meant to get that large. When I was doing some research this week on this sort of landscaping, I, I learned that these types of shrubs are only supposed to be 12 to 24 inches tall. Maybe 36, depending on how you want it. And it kind of made me feel a little sad and a little depressed because it shows how lazy I am that I haven't done anything about this. How could it be 96 inches high when it's only supposed to be 24? But the question is, why should it only be 12 to 24 or 36? Doesn't that seem a little bit small? Maybe it seems small in comparison to the immensity of what I have. What I have is quite beautiful. Oddly enough, after studying this passage this week, I think I figured out why they recommend the shrub being so small. It's the same reason that bushes and hedges must also be constantly trimmed and and brought in and kept under control. When a hedge gets too tall, it misaligns the visual focus. It takes away from what is supposed to be uh, the, the, the focal point. 
A shrub is supposed to accentuate what is there. It is supposed to accent the lawn. It is supposed to accent the house to make it look uh, more beautiful. It is to be the one, it's supposed to be one piece of the orchestra that, uh, that is part of the whole to make the symphony what it is. Instead, this overgrown horticultural anomaly is robbing the focus of its glory. The shrub is supposed to make the house look more attractive. Instead, it points the attention to itself. The funny thing is, is that the shrub is not even required to make the house look good. It's simply an accent. If that shrub wasn't there, the house, I'm confident, would still look pretty good. And I'm convinced that many Christians are living a shrub-like Christianity. They are living as if the accents, the flavors of Christianity, are the show. Whether they realize it or not, they have boiled Christianity down to the do's and the don'ts. They have melted Christianity and the gospel to their preferences. They have brought it down to their ideals, their secondary, non-essential doctrines. They have made the church a, a country club with clear lines of who is welcome and who is not. They have not taken the time to examine whether their shrubs are to accentuate or maybe if they even hinder the beauty of the gospel. And now they overpower, they overcrowd, and they misalign what the gospel, the good news of Jesus is. When the shrubs and the hedges become the focal point, we lose the simple beautiful message of Jesus coming to seek and to save the lost. In our passage this morning, Jesus confronts uh, some religious leaders who have allowed their hedges to get too tall, whereas these leaders should be introducing their people to a God who is gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. They instead display a God who is rigid, angry with them if they step out of line, and punitive. They bring a religion that says, in order to be right with God, you have to look right with God. And looking right often looks like how we look. They boil the faith down to a set of external rules and traditions. And so now confronting them, uh, Jesus provides a calibration that we desperately need because we also are very prone to Phariseeism in our own faith. So how do we live while trimming the hedges of our faith so that we don't make Christianity out to be something that it's not. 
How do we live so that these extra things that we, that we pile on don't become the big thing? I believe that Mark provides two big, uh, crucial things to make our faith pure, violent, uh, vibrant, violent, wow, vibrant and pure. And the first one is that we ought to examine our traditions. Examine our traditions. You know, when I wrote this point, I realized that I needed to provide some clarity because uh, the question is, what do I mean when, when I talk about traditions? I'm not talking about traditions in the, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, the traditional sense, uh, whereas we think about holidays and all the, the things that we do. Rather, what I mean by examining your traditions is I mean that we need to take a close look at what it is that drives our faith. What is it that we define Christianity to be? What does it mean to, um, to be a Christian? If someone that had never known anything about Christianity were to come to you and say, what does it mean to be a Christian, what would your answer be? That, by and large, would tell you what you think about the gospel. And carefully examining these traditions can surprisingly be painful. We can find that we have deep biases in our hearts. We have misplaced importance of certain doctrines. Maybe even legalism uh, has crept into our hearts or even false beliefs that have nothing to do with our faith. Let's take a look at how it plays out here. Look at verse 1. <coughs> Excuse me. The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him. This is not a minor point. Mark is not uh, just providing some details for us. It's very significant that these Pharisees and the scribes came from Jerusalem because Jesus right now is in the area of Galilee. And from uh, Jerusalem up to Galilee, a straight shot is about 60 miles. However, in between the regions of Judea and, uh, and uh, Galilee, there was this huge region called Samaria. And Samaria was filled with people that the Jewish uh, folks thought of as dirty Gentiles, people that they wanted nothing to do with. So, uh, instead of going 60 miles straight north from Judea to, some, uh, to uh, uh, Galilee, they would take the long way around. They would typically go east around Samaria and up, and that would add close to an extra 30 miles. So, you're talking these Pharisees here are traveling 90 miles, and they didn't have Uber back then. They didn't have cars. They didn't have trains. They didn't have buses. They walked this 90 miles to go to Jesus and confront him. And what is it that they're confronting him on? Well, how his friends wash their hands. Yeah, they confront Jesus on how his friends wash their hands. It's not as if they, they traveled all this way because they're interested in public health. They're not coming to help Jesus' disciples have better hygiene so that they don't get sick when they eat. Rather, in their minds, this voyage has everything to do with what it means to be identified 
as a Jew. It had to do with religious and cultural identity. It had to do with their understanding of what it meant to be close with God. Now, look with me starting in verse 2. They observed that some of his disciples were eating bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs that they've received and keep, and like the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, and dining couches. You get the idea. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands? You know, I, it might sound strange, but I have a fair amount of sympathy for the Pharisees. They get a bad rap in Christianity. And I think, to a large degree, it's well-deserved. But at a very fundamental level, they, I think they had good intentions. Because here is a group of people that were so, uh, felt so oppressed by the Roman occupancy, uh, occupancy of uh, Israel at the time and loved God and desperately wanted God's Messiah to come and to clean up this mess, restore Israel to its former glory. And the Pharisees were one group of about four different groups at that time that thought that they had the answer to how to make the Messiah come. Their answer, the only way that the Messiah will come is if we are ready for them. And the only way that we can be ready for them is if we are pure. So that means if we make sure we do everything right, if we go through all the purification laws, if we do everything that is according to his standard, God is going to say, oh, oh, these are my people. Look at them. They really mean business. Now it's time to come and clean up. And so what they would do is that they were meticulous in this law-keeping so much so that they made up a bunch of rules and laws. And so, for example, let's say that this ledge right here is God's law. If I walk over this, I've gone beyond the bounds. I have gone beyond what I'm supposed to do. But what they would do is, is to say, we don't want to screw up at all, so here's God's law. We're going to put a fence around that, and we're going to make other rules that are way back here. So there's no chance that we might slip up and actually go off. I mean, it's a noble thing, but it ends up becoming the big thing for them. And so there were these purification laws in the book of Leviticus that were only reserved for the priests. If you were a priest and you were going to go into the tabernacle and, and take care of the sacrifices, they were to wash their hands. It had nothing to do with hygiene. It was a symbol of being holy. But to a first century Jew, the Pharisees had done a wonderful job of convincing everyone that it's not just for the priests, but to be safe, everyone needs to wash their hands. Again, it wasn't for hygiene. In fact, the bowl that they rinsed their hands in probably had more bacteria than anything else that they would touch during the food. This policy was to show their separateness and their purity against a Gentile culture. 
it is to show their ethnocentrism, that the universe revolves around them. Verse 4, when it says that they, they made sure that they washed when returning from the marketplace, that wasn't just dipping their hands in the basin. If they were at the marketplace, undoubtedly they rubbed shoulders with those dirty Gentiles and they, they touched stuff that these people made and they were around these people. And so instead of just washing their hands, if they went to the marketplace, they had to have a full bath because there's no way that they could have any dirty Jew, uh, uh, Gentile on them. And so one way to get at the heart of what this passage is teaching is to look at repetitive words or ideas. In verse, verses 2 through 5, notice the words that are repeated. You can underline this if you're a person that writes in your Bible. Tradition, customs. It's used a lot in this whole passage. And these religious leaders have come a long way to say to Jesus, you and your disciples, you're ruining it for us. Because you are not washing your hands, you are limiting the possibility that Messiah is going to come and he's going to make all of this right. So the shrub of their rules and their laws had become overgrown and eclipsed what the true law was meant to do to show them their sinfulness and lead them to God. The Pharisees got it wrong because God responds more willingly to those who cry out in desperation than he does to the ones that think they have it all together. God desires you to come to him with a broken heart, not with a life that says, hey, I've, I've got it all together. I don't necessarily need him because things are going pretty well for me. As, and, and it's in this arena that we, many of us find ourselves. Many of us have created these, these Christian paradigms for ourselves and hence for everyone else. We have these, these spiritual lists that as long as we can check off the boxes from them, the ones that we have established, then we are doing okay. I don't swear, check that one off. I don't drink alcohol, well, I suppose I'll check that one off too. Never had sex before marriage, well, I'll check that one off too. I haven't gambled, check that one off. I'm not a Democrat, check that one off. I dress nice for church, check that one off. Or sometimes we see it in our biases. Someone comes in to church that may not fit our paradigm, and we get this country club mindset in which membership is exclusive and tribalism is rampant. We communicate these subtle things that tell outsiders that they are unclean and we are clean. We create these, these paradigms to make ourselves look like heroes and everyone else like zeros. 
And all of these things, though they may be beneficial to you, they are not the main thing. They are spiritual shrubs. You have taken something to accent your faith, and you've made it the point. And instead of Christianity being a vessel of of freedom and emancipation from sin and shame and guilt and abuse and rejection, and instead becomes a tool for oppression for people that are not like us. It says those types of people are out, these types of people are in. Oddly enough, those who are in are the ones that look like us, talk like us, do the kind of things that we do, talk like we do. Jesus responds to this mindset in verse 6. Isaiah rightly prophesied about you hypocrites. You hypocrites, he says. He says... Because you're a teetotaler, that doesn't make you any more holy than the alcoholic that is struggling to get by. You're not any better off as a registered Republican than a Democrat brother or sister. You're not closer to God if you have been a Christian for 40 years, you've taught Sunday school, you've been on the leadership board, and you have gone into mission work. You're not any more holy than the abused single mother who is desperately trying to keep her life together. Verse 6, again. Isaiah rightly prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands, abandoning the Uh, command of God, you hold on to human tradition. And he also said to them, sarcasm here, you have a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your tradition. Jesus is telling them that they have missed the point. They have missed it. These rules, though they may have good intentions, they've become a way to disguise Pride and selfishness in a robe of self-righteousness. So you may be here today subconsciously believing that a Christian, they have all their ducks in a row. They've got it all together. They always are happy. It's not true. may think that they don't do the things that they shouldn't do, that they do the things that they should do, or you might associate a Christian with fighting for the right causes or being on the correct side of the the political spectrum or dressing a certain way or keeping a, a certain type of friends, you know, whatever it is. If you think that Christianity is anything other than clinging to the mercy, forgiveness, and freedom that is in Jesus Christ, you've missed it. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is so much better, so much bigger, and so much more powerful and life-changing than outward conformity to a set of boundaries. You can't legislate morality and expect that people are just going to get it. 
their heart has to change. And that's our second point, is that we need to get to the heart of the matter. Get to the heart of the matter. Verse 14. Summoning the crowd again, he told them, listen to me, all of you, and understand, nothing that goes into a person from the outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. You see that in just a few words here, Jesus gets at the heart of the issue in every single one of our lives. If we want to know what the biggest problem in our life is, if we want to know what the biggest problem in our world is, you need not look forward to uh, uh, further than Jesus' simple words here. Your greatest problem, my greatest problem, our greatest adversity are not the things that happen to you from the outside. Our biggest problem is what is in our hearts. Look with me at what James tells us in James chapter 4, verse 1. He says, What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? So why is it that we have interpersonal conflicts? Why is it that we are personally conflicted? Why is it that we might have strife or wage war with anything that interferes with our personal agenda? James is telling us that is what's in our hearts. Biblically speaking, the heart is the command center of our being. The heart is at the root of everything that you think, everything that you feel, everything that you say, everything that you do is a result of what is in your heart. It is so central that Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 tells us this. It says, Guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. Other translations use it as the, the, the fountain of the, the wellspring of life. That's where everything comes from. So we ought to guard our heart. Jesus, then knowing this, he instructs his audience that outward conformity to moralism or cultural standards does absolutely nothing. You can stand for all the right things. You can abstain from all the right things that you think are bad. Do all the things that you think you ought to do, but if the heart isn't right, it gets nowhere with God. Jesus goes on, verse 18, says to his disciples, Are you also lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach, and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities. And by the way, that word that he uses there, it's this word called pornaya. It's where we get the word pornography from. But it's really any sexual deviancy that's outside of uh, monogamous heterosexual marriage. 
thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. This is just an example list, by the way. All of these things come from within and defile a person. There's a pastor named Jesse Heikinen that wrote a book called Unchained. And in it, he, I think he explains this very well. He says, down through history, the predominant viewpoint has been that whatever we do determines who we are. We've heard the old adage that you are what you eat. This isn't a new school of thought because Aristotle actually wrote, we are what we repeatedly do. A recent TED Talk declared, you are what you tweet. Each one of us Each one of these proclaims, while carrying a significant nugget of truth, gets to the core message of the gospel backwards. Frank Zappa, of all people, got it right when he said, you are what you is. In other words, it's not what we do that determines who we are. Rather, who we are determines what we do. That's the biblical paradigm. So in other words, and this is really important to understand, our need for Jesus is not just so. We need him for this too, but it's not just so that he can forgive us for what we've done. Our need for Jesus is not just so that we can become better citizens. Our need for Jesus is not to just help us feel better about ourselves. Our need for Jesus is to make us completely new people. To give us new hearts. It is not just to pull up some of the weeds in our spiritual garden. and, and Rather, it is to dig out the roots completely till up that soil and plant the new seeds where a lush garden can grow. And when we come to Jesus, notice the biblical paradigm that happens. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? Jeremiah is giving a diagnosis of who we are in our natural state, the center of our being. It is who we are by nature. But mercifully, God gave us a promise. In Ezekiel chapter 36, this is what he promised. I will give you, I will give you, God said, a new heart and a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you. God gave us a promise. Whereas we could do nothing to fix these hearts of stone that are bound against him, that he would come and that he would be our spiritual surgeon. That he would give us a transplant. That he would give us hearts at their root that no longer desire sin, that no longer desire evil, that no longer desire those addictions that, that, that come our way and so easily grip us. Instead, 
We would desire God in His glory in the life that He promises. But how does He do this? It's through the person and work of Jesus. Through Jesus' perfect life, His substitutionary death on, on the cross on our behalf, and the resurrection from the dead, we're made new. And it's given to you, and it's given to me through the avenue of faith or trusting in what Jesus, who He was, what He did, and what He said. Look at how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of the world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the Spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and were by nature children of wrath, as the others were also. But God, some of the best words that you'll hear in the Bible, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love that He had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. What great news. You know, the fantastic Mr. Fox is a 2009 animated film based on the Roald Dahl children's novel of the same name. The story is about crafty Mr. Fox who likes to steal food from some of the local farmers. And while raiding a squab farm one day, Mr. Fox and his wife, Felicity, they, they, they trigger a, a trap and they become caged. And while in that trap, his wife, Felicity, tells him that she is pregnant. And she pleads with him to find a safer job once they escape. And he indeed does that. Fox becomes a, a newspaper editor, uh, columnist, and, and moves his family into a, into a big hole at the base of a tree. But two years later, or what is translated as uh, 12 Fox years later, after promising his wife Felicity that he would quit stealing, Mr. Fox goes back to his old ways. Every night he sneaks out to steal from the local farmers. The farmers eventually, they get fed up with Mr. Fox's thieving ways, and so they, they, they dig their way into the fox's home, and Fox and his, his family, they huddle underground with nowhere to go. And finally, one night, Felicity fo uh, tells Fox, 12 fox years ago, you promised to me when we were caged up that if we survived, you would never steal another chicken, turkey, goose, or squab, whatever they are. And I believed you. And she started to cry. And she said, why did you lie to me? Because I'm a wild animal, Fox replied. Felicity countered, but you are also a husband and a father. 
To which Mr. Fox replied, I'm just trying to tell you the truth about myself. Every one of us is a Mr. Fox. We are sinners by nature and by choice. We know things about ourselves that we don't appreciate. We'll we'll make the promise that we're never going to do this again. I can't believe I fell into this sin once more. This is it. It's never going to happen again. But eventually, we find that that pattern has repeated itself. And we find ourselves in the same trouble that we were in before. The only way to break that cycle is we need a new heart. We need Jesus to take away this heart of a fox and replace it with a heart that seeks after God. Then and only then can the cycle be broken and hope genuinely delivered. And the good news is that God is ready. He's got that new heart. It's, it's in a cooler. It's ready to go in. And he is beckoning you, beckoning you to come to the surgery center to get prepped, to lie on the surgical table, and he will take care of the rest. You know, tomorrow... It's going to be a really good day for me. Why? Because I'm finally getting my hedge trimmer. It's coming in the mail. And I'm going to do some serious surgery within the next couple of weeks on the shrubs that have overgrown themselves. I have been waiting for this trimmer for about a year after the last trimmer that I bought and short-circuited within a day that I had it. I've been waiting and waiting and waiting. Folks, you know what? We don't need to wait for a spiritual shrub trimmer. He is waiting for us. And He is ready and willing And we need to come to Him in order for Him to prune away those things that we have added to the faith or that hinder our faith. Not only is He our master gardener, but He is our skillful surgeon. And He will slice away those parts of our lives that He wants gone, and He will give us a new heart. We must come to Him to see our true state, our true need, and our true inability. And it's then and only then, through faith, that we can truly begin to live. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, there are countless ways in which every one of us add to faith things that either are are good in themselves but not required, or we are engaged in behavior that is completely antithetical to what you have called us to. Either way, Lord, I pray that you would trim 
the hedges in our lives. That if you need to totally uproot some of those, Lord, bring your biggest shovel. Bring your bucket loader, Lord, and tear that ground up. Lord, for those of us that need pruning, I pray that it would not hurt. And if it does, that we would lean on the promises of the victory of Jesus and that we would go from this place to love and to serve you with a new heart, with new affections, with new desires. We come to you pleading, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. Would you stand with us? Let's sing together, Victory in Jesus.
there is victory in Jesus, Lord, would you help us take hold of that victory that is in him? Lord, his victory is our victory, and let us go from this place to serve in that victorious power that he imparts to us through his spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.